Hi, this is Mark. I'm very happy today to be joined by Marcus Lepola, who's an ethnologist, scholar, and museum worker down in Pargas near Torku in southern Finland. Um, hi, Marcus. Thank you for joining me. Well, hello, Mark. I'm glad to join you here today. Um, Marcus also has a, an interest in bushcraft, and that's going to come in useful today while we talk about the subject of puko knives. Uh, but firstly, I think from that introduction, an ethnologist. I, I had to look this up, so I thought I'd share this with the listener. Um, ethnology is cultural anthropology. Uh, and in even more simple terms, that's the branch of anthropology that analyzes and compares human cultures, as in social structure, language, religion, and technology. And I think the the puko knife, the history, and the use of kind of covers several of those uh, those descriptions. Uh, before we start talking, I think just a quick shout out to to my friend um, Henry in Michigan. This is a subject that's very close to his heart because he seems to make puko knife more often than I make my bed in the morning. So uh, Henry, this one's this one's for you, and uh, thanks for introducing me and Marcus to each other. Marcus, maybe. You can you can tell us a little bit about your firstly about your your work down there, um, and uh, and also a little bit about your bushcraft skills. Well, uh, as Mark was telling you pre before we started up this interview, uh, my work is uh, well. I'm lucky enough to have a very you know, wide scope when it comes to what my projects and my work. So, but mostly it's in uh, it's in connection with museums here in the uh, beautiful. Vargas Archipelago. So uh, I work with exhibits, I work with the, the museum collections, I work with the you know, children's programs um, and, and, and all, all kinds of things like that. And uh, I have a, I'm also affiliated with the Obakan University, so I still, I'm trying to, uh, with, as with another project of mine, is just getting my thesis done, which is you know far away. Well, it, I, I, I'm pretty far off with it but still there's lots to be done before I can call myself a PhD hopefully that'll come very soon and uh, well broadly speaking also enjoy you know this is a wonderful area where we're living so beautiful nature so I enjoy that a lot you know <clears throat> so we have summertime you go boating wintertime you ski and, and possibly even ski on sea ice if it's uh, thick enough so I also enjoy educating people in different Context. Uh, we be, I, I do arrange classes in the, in different skills, traditional skills, and I've already also thought uh, uh, wilderness guides in, in the, what's supposed to say traditional skills. So you know that's pretty much what I do, like on a wide scope. And you shared a very interesting video with me. Maybe I'll put it into the show notes for this episode. Uh, of you, of you starting starting fires with with your bare hands and a piece of wooden string as well. So these well, are the kind of things you teach people. Well, yeah, but uh, that was um, actually for the audience to know because when I was contacted by you, I was um, I kind of drew drew some parallels to another Brit I came across in England, where you know, when you who also was you know kind of an. Uh, kind of a reporter, you know, living in a different environment, like you live in Finland, you see things with a diff from a different angle, and the same thing applied for him. And it happened to be a bushcraft festival in Sweden, 
which I attended uh, last year. Uh, I wish I would have attended it this year again because it's in like an annual thing now. But I just didn't have the time because of my work here in Pargas. So last year I, I intended, attended the, the festival and, and met some nice people and I was suddenly asked to participate in a competition. And uh, I wasn't ready for it because, you know, it was a Swedish championships in fire drilling. And, you know, being a Finn, <laughs> I didn't think I would qualify, but I did qualify and I think I did pretty well. So well, I didn't put my country to shame in that context. Well, in the video I saw, you won that particular contest. So I think you, you held, up, held up the Finnish flag with, uh, with great pride. Yeah, thank you. We're, we're here today to talk about this Pukko knife. Um, maybe you can uh, start by explaining the, the, the knife and, uh, and maybe the, is there some kind of meaning to that name? Does it, does it have a meaning? Actually, we, when we are approaching this issue, we need to at least make a separation here to begin with because um, uh, the Puko knife, when you are talking about the Puko knife, the English people are talking about the Puko knife, they're thinking specifically of a knife used in Finland, which you know, which has a certain feel to it, a certain handle and a blade and, uh, you know, that, uh, the whole thing. But where, when we are talking about Pukko knives, like here in the archipelago area, which is, uh, uh, this is actually, like, for listeners at home, they should know that Finland has, you know, at least two, if not three, cultural areas with three languages. So you have Swedish language culture along the coast, like where I'm living, it's very predominantly Swedish culture, and then you have more Finnish culture in the inlands, like where you're living in Seineoki. And, uh, and uh, from that context, a knife was just called a knife, a kniv. But then, curiously, as in the 1900s, when uh, people in, well, different manufacturers in Ostrobotnia started mass producing these knives, we, we think about the Spooko knives, then there were they were being described as puko knives even here in a Swedish-speaking part of the country. But people were using knives all the time, but there was a distinction between design and shape of it. So, What know. does distinguish the puko from other knives with regards to its design? Well, to understand the distinguishing features that, that regardless if you're in a Swedish, Finnish-speaking or Sami-speaking regions of Finland, uh, people used knives from a day-to-day -day basis for many different things, uh, like knives in general. And these knives, utility knives, were very simple indeed. They were uh, uh, often, you know, a person who needed a knife would just approach a blacksmith and the blacksmith would produce a blade for the person. And, the, and often even the, the blacksmith wouldn't even have the blade or anything, but that was the thing to do. And often... Uh, the handle was very simple. It was just the blade was stuck into a piece of wood, preferably a piece of uh, uh, bur curly birch, which is really durable and won't split that easily. And in some cases, a, uh, a, a sheath would also be added to the knife. But in some cases, the knife didn't even have a sheath. It was just kept in a pocket. But uh, and, the, and the sheath was very crude. For health and safety. Yeah. So, yeah, because people were using knives. It was like your personal tool. You were using it for eating. You only had like a knife and a spoon when you were eating. So knives were used to cut up bread and everything. They were used for anything. You, you, you were always fiddling around like in an agrarian society. It was always something to cut. 
and the knife was always handy. And uh, this is this just went on for centuries, but the puko knife. And uh, uh, I remember you asking about the name, or actually uh, about the name of the puko, like why it's called puko. Well, uh, the explanation is that uh, it has the name originates from uh, a German type of, of decorative knife, which was used by uh, German traders during the Hansa period in, in Finland, and they were called Pukar type of knife, so daggers. So it has a Germanic, um, a Germanic origin. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's back to the, we, we, we're going back to the 15th and 16th centuries. So that's, so, so, uh, and even in the Finnish language, you have the name, well, you, a person who is uh, causing us, you know, making trouble is called uh, Rita Pukari. And you know, Rita is quarrel, like quarrel Pukari. And Pukari is in direct reference to the type of knife which is used. And uh, it is my interpretation is that these knives which were used by the Hansa traders were, you know, they were probably quite basic knife, perhaps slightly larger than the knives that were used by other people, but they were also uh, uh, nicely made with nice sheets and such. So my my interpretation is that this was uh, more of a status object, and uh, they were admired by you know Finns and others who saw them, and 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 just you know being because the knife had been you know it was a day to day you know we used it for you know very mundane purposes but but I think that the, the, at that point you wanted to have realized that the knife could also be a status object like. It could be pretty, and it was something like you could uh, take pride over of owning. You, you make it sound like so it, in, in yeah. Crocodile Dundee, where he pulls it out and says, "That's not a knife. This is a knife." Kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you were saying the puko was was more as became more of a tool uh, here when it when it became popular. Well, it was uh, no. I was saying like more. I think the. Originally, the book of just the idea of having a more of a representative, like nicer tool, uh, was that in a way a book was kind of like a it's just an ordinary knife which was uh, designed in a prettier fashion. And, and, and over time, we ended up with the knives which we now recognize as pukkos, these beautiful Osbotia knives. Uh, keep in mind, knives were made like puko knives were made a bit uh, were made in other regions outside of Ostrobotnia as well. But it was in Ostrobotnia where this craft really started growing. Then, and you have knives from the 19th century which look very special, like the Vöro type knife, Vöri uh, puko or Vöro, which is Swedish Vöro, were very they were interestingly representative. They almost the the sheets on these things look like miniature, uh, you know. Sword, sword sheets in a way and carried on a belt you know very very they're expensive to make and they were status symbols so i think the puko at, at one point became more of a status symbol as well as being a useful there's, there's, there's a culture of traditional yeah. dress and traditional uniforms in finland um, and each region seems to have its own its own style and its own colors almost um and the the, the knife is part of that ceremonial Costume, at least maybe in certain areas, is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, in certain areas they would, you know, like like Osobotnia, it was very much a part of the costume, 
and some and people people were carrying knives, you know, for the the basis, but it was just not as integrated part of the uh, of the the costume. So you know, Finland is uh, where there are, even though it's we're not that many, or we weren't that many even back then, but still there are very mon- many differences regionally in how. Um, you know, like like every village might have a little bit of a different way of viewing things. You should also know that pukkos or knives, even knives, have had a very different meaning for people back then than they have now. For instance, uh, just the value of having a good tool, having it being produced by a blacksmith. You know, it costs you it was a, a costly endeavor to get one. You know, you wouldn't necessarily own that many knives. You maybe had one or two, or, or that was it. Often the utility knife, and then if you were a carpenter, you might have a specialty knife. And uh, back, let's say, up to 19, 19th, uh, 20th century, uh, people were you know, getting their knives from blacksmiths, and certain blacksmiths had a reputation of being better than others. Often they would use old files, which were imported steel, better quality, and uh, remake them into knives. And Which is what I think our friend yeah, Henry yeah. Has, has done with some of the, the knives that he's made. I've heard this re- reshaping a file, which I didn't realize was a... I should have known it was a tradition that he'd picked up from, from here, perhaps, but it was uh, interesting to hear. Because uh, uh, steel in Finland and iron was mostly dependent on uh, whatever bog iron you were able to harvest, and the quality of that wasn't the best possible, so... so. And later on, during the Swedish period, of, obviously there was also an import of steel from the Swedish mills, and and, and quality got got better. But but you know, even up to the 1900s, uh, just owning a good knife, which would not crack when you were cutting through a small spot of branch in a piece of wood, that, that was you know that was a good thing to have. Maybe you can tell a little bit about the the design of this knife because it is quite distinctive. Uh, si- simple looking design but distinctive in its in its shape so, well if you just think about a uh, general it might be in a general book knife it's just that you have a proper knife you have the blade is not too long it's just mm, as wide as or as long as your your hands width really so maybe 10 centimeters and then you have a firm handle handle to it which often was just a good handle of maybe burl uh not necessarily always you wouldn't have like any type of um, piece of brass or something like uh just to uh, uh keep the wear of the handle down to a minimum because the wood would, would shave off shave off if you're doing a lot of uh, carving and, and you brush up against the blade and the blade brushes up against whatever you're carving and it eats away the wood of the handle so okay. you would have like a and then the pommel is firmly it's it's made to fit the hand perfectly so you ha- won't slide away easily when you're carving out like often when you would carve you would grab the whatever you're carving and just put le- if you're right hand grab with left hand and then just carve in what the, with the pulling action the right so having a uh, like a guard finger guard is not necessary with the puko it's actually a very unnecessary thing to have and it's it's something that's become culturally quite significant in Finland, not just the sort of ceremonial uh, reasons that we were talking about earlier, but just the, the way that, for example, my son, Olli, was given his first, ni- first knife by his granddad, his, his Vari, over here in Finland. And 
this this thing was all handle. The blade was only a few centimeters long, and the handle was you know probably twice as twice as big. With a and the blade had this sort of rounded rounded end yeah. to it, uh, and he. Yeah, seemed to just spend most of his time stripping bark from twigs. We we had this collection of smooth sticks that Ollie had uh, had trimmed <laughs> had trimmed down for us. But that kind of that seemed to be significant, actually being given the puko as a as a gift. The uh, receiving a knife or a puko as a gift as a child was the was kind of an uh, important part of growing up when you were big enough to have your own knife, a puko. And I would like to kind of rewind back to the ritual part of knives because uh, I can just I just want to pull out a few examples of just how to get like an image of how rich the traditional with knives is actually in Finland. For instance, uh, if you happen to break your knife, you know there was for a long time in different parts of Finland there was the belief that you wouldn't you shouldn't discard the blade which you broke. You, because it had still uh, magical potential, <laughs> and often, well, well, people were very superstitious. So you know, there are like different variations of different magics you could do for you know, if you have your sick livestock is ill and so on, that would possibly involve having uh, the the blade of a broken knife, which would perhaps uh, cut off some hairs off the back of the sick cow and and. <laughs> or toss this knife over a sick cow and there were lots of different magical tricks you could do and, and, and often like a, a broken knife would it was included in this type of magic. Yeah. Yeah. But the magic was with the knife, it, it had to be uh, accidentally broken. You couldn't break it on purpose and use it because then it didn't have any magic. So that's one aspect. And there's much more, but that's just one. But uh, also there is an interesting tradition when it comes to uh, young men uh, and, and young women in a marriageable age in certain parts of Finland, in the Finnish parts of Finland, they have this tradition of, of uh, uh, I think it's called in Finnish, tupella county, or, or, or uh, I think roughly it translates to, to, going, uh, to going around with the sheets or presenting the sheets. And it would involve a young maiden who was uh, in an eligible age and wanted to get married. She would uh, stand outside the church on Sunday when and people were coming for services because you had to go to services Sunday church, and and she would stand there just with the with the knife sheet, and if there was a young man who was interested in her, he would present his knife and put it in her sheet. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. sounds like a, a, a Finnish version of Cinderella or something. Yeah. However, <laughs> uh, there's an uh, finestris. Uh, uh, he would not receive an answer at the point, like if he was accepted as a suitor or not. Uh, he would at least have to wait until the next day, on which he would, uh, you know, go to the house of the the the, the, the girl in question, and he would. A pro, at that time, because I'm talking about the 1800s, at that time people were you, often putting their uh, knives and spoons, they were hanging it on the outer wall of them. And if he were to find his knife among those knives, then he would know that he's, you know, he's, suiting, he, he's been accepted you know, as a suitor. Because if his knife was among the family members' knives. But if it was in some other spot, like at the door, you know, stuck in between the door, then he knew that... Eh, 
Tough luck. <laughs> Maybe next time. And he has to go and take his knife back from the door and uh, and try yeah. try again another, another Sunday. Yeah. So another another Sunday and another sheath. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 You know that was one way of matching knives with sheets. <laughs> so there's a very rich tradition of how knives are interwoven into the society and culture of people around here. Yeah, and and also my my girlfriend Satu, she's at she's from the east. She's from Kite, um, but she, yeah. she has these strong memories of using her puko for making vasta uh, or yeah. preparing fish. And she insisted that I call it Vasta and not Vita. It matters. These things are very Vista, important yeah. within Finland. Yeah, it's actually Vista, not Vasta. <laughs> I'll let her find that out for herself by listening to this. It's the, yeah, well, in the western parts of Finland, it's a Vita. In the eastern part, like Kite, it's Vasta. And that's and the, yeah. Uh, this is the birch branches that you use for, for cleaning. And yeah, it's the same thing. It's just a different name. Yeah. Yes. Where you. Yeah, yeah. It's I enjoy. But before internet, I enjoyed explaining what Levasta and Vita are to you know foreigners yeah. who weren't acquainted with the sauna culture. I think there's still plenty of people that could learn about this uh, sauna culture, oh. and that's the whole point of this podcast, I guess, is to just help people understand oh, yeah. a little bit more about how how life is over yeah. over here. Yes. Um, yeah. But the, uh, I could actually add with Bukos, uh, I find that like life over here in north parts of Europe, like Finland, um, you know, I also during my, I don't know if I would call it career or life, had opportunity of doing a lot of different things in a lot of different parts of the world. And I remember particularly a year, a couple of years back when I was in Alaska for the summer with the Alutic people and uh, knowing that we were, we were, you know, out in, in camps, out in the you know, in the, like maybe call it wilderness because you know there was no cell phones that <laughs> worked there and bears or what place, but uh, they were like tradition camps where people were you know just engaging into different activities of making traditional things and such. And I did bring a few nice extra pukos with me, and they were very popular among those who received them. Okay, cherished. And, and lovely because they're just so practical you know they're easy to carry light to carry and and they just grow on you immediately you know it's receiving, like receiving a, a good knife a good book yeah. is as a gift is a is a great honor in finland and it yeah. seems like you carried on that tradition now in alaska as well yeah and i think that there's a lot of uh, interesting connections with Finns and uh in, in alaska and eskimo because there are similarities in the way you interact and how you think about the environment how you work with the environment and, and it's and it just it, we just connected on the puko level really it's easy to connect on that level because it's the tool that makes everything possible really if you would call the like the a good axe is something that you would refer to as the key to the forest but a puko is more or less a key to you know everything else because with the knife you could do like 99% of what you needed to manufacture at home because you couldn't buy stuff you had made them were made by just using that, that knife for the puko what about some of the the legendary stories that you hear i, I don't know if it's just here in etelapochima or south ostrobotnia but, but what who or what were the puko junkari are they fact or fiction uh, there, it's not. It's not a. It's a fact and partly even fiction. But the puko uh, yunkari is is a very. Uh, it's typical for southern Astrobotnia, Finnish part of Astrobotnia, where you would have these uh, 
strong men, village men that kind of were like uh, some would describe them as mafia bosses with a posse, <laughs> and they would you know go around uh, uh, threatening people and sometimes having using the knives or pukkos to to get you know to to intimidate their opponents, and often they would refrain from cutting them like stabbing. It was more like cutting, raising faces or cutting up the clothes and stuff like that it's it's so yes there were this was a real thing back then and uh some people find pride in it other don't to understand this phenomenon you have to understand that the phenomenon started off uh in the 18th century and it first started off in the swedish speaking part of Ostrobotnia in Vöro, Vöri, where you had this type of <laughs> Uh, say young men who were uh, being, you know, very, very predominant, active, and, and maybe a little bit violent towards others. Not necessarily always using a knife; they could also use other types of things to harm each other. But, 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 but they were uh, they they were being, you know, uh, going out of bounds with this even in the 17th century. And know of that because the priesthood that was being in charge of of upholding the law and order, they would write down these <laughs> different things they did and how they would approach it and how they would be punished for it. But keep in mind, uh, Finland in the 18th century was a country which had had a lot of grievances. There had been a great northern war. The Wrath, which you call the Great Wrath, had, had more or less destroyed Ostrobotnia. There was a lot of violence involved with the Russian it was actually the, this, this is actually a war with where Russia would would took over Finland, and uh, just uh, there were a lot of atrocities being made, and this is, and you know, this has an impact on people who survive it. Like today, when you have people who survive or are, are you know, running away from war, they are they have a different approach to violence, and this phenomenon in the Sandnostobotnia kind of echoed what happened more than a century before. In, in, in the Swedish part of Ostbotnia. So it transgressed from there. And uh, knife became more, maybe in southern, maybe in this later part, the knife became more predominantly part of the, the, the violence than it was before, just because it was also a custom of, of having nice knives and use, showing them as status symbols. This uh, was a phenomenon which was not common in any other parts of Finland, and it also had to do with the fact that in, Os in Ostrobotnia there was more, there were less lands available for more young people, and that created some type of st social strife, which also added to the whole soup. We have young men who don't have land and aren't able to do too much about the situation, and they get frustrated, and, and this was kind of an, a result of that. I guess another result of that would have been the, the, the waves of emigration from Finland over to America, Canada, this, Australia. And, but that was later on. Okay. This only later on was kind of the release. Once you had, like, we had many people leaving this Dostoboten region to America and Canada because there was a surplus of young men and people who didn't have access to their own lands. They couldn't, you know. Back then, the tradition was that if you were the firstborn son, you got the whole thing. The whole farm is yours, period. And, and, they, and, and as, as, as more and more children survive childhood due to a better you know, living condition, then more children would survive. And then that kind of caused this problem as well, that you just had this surplus of young men and the tradition of violence, which echoed the, the, the wars with Russia in the previous century. 
And uh, like you have to keep in mind that you also had old soldiers living in villages back then who were, uh, you know, every village had to have like one soldier that they would uh, give to service for the king. And these soldiers were kind of rough around the edges. So, so, and they were in every village. So that also added to the social mixture, mixture of the time. <laughs> I, I, in one of my earlier, uh, back in season two, I did a couple of episodes about emigration. I went mm. to Perusenioki, near, nearby to Senioki here, mm. and visited the Emigrant Museum. And uh, there were two, two episodes, one about the emigration and then one about these houses that they were moving back to South Ostrobotnia from... Oh, one from uh, Australia, one from, um, and one from Siberia. And the story there was of this guy. I'll give the short version now, and if anyone wants yeah. to hear the full version, they can go back to that other episode. But Matti Unkeri uh, from Kalhova, who used his book to foul means and committed murder, was sentenced, had a life sentence, and then exiled to Siberia. And uh, to get from Finland to Siberia in those days, there was no Trans-Siberian Express to take. It was, it was by foot. And then he, after the end of his sentence, he settled down in a, in a farm in Omsk. Uh, and then one day decided he had to come back to Kalhova to collect his tools and walked back by foot, but only could stay one day because he was recognized and there was a threat, you know, threats against his well-being. And so he walked back to Siberia. And now, Marcus, you may, you're, you're smiling and no one can hear you smiling. And you might, you might say that that's, that's all a legend, but I like that story, even if it's no, actually, made up. They are, I think that story is true. And, and there are you know, different stories about pins getting either, well, Siberia was uh, in a way a very lenient way of, of punishing people because during, this is during the 19th century Russian rule when, you know, Finland was more or less, the, we didn't, uh, corporal punishment was more or less abolished and replaced with sending people to Siberia. And that also has to do a little bit with the type of violence which knives enable. Because when I was describing the situation in Vero in this post-war Finland, where you know violence was common, beatings of people and, and, and knife cuttings, uh, during that time, uh, Finland and Sweden were, uh, the law, the system of law was very old. It was uh, like what we call the old provincial laws were still in effect. And according to the old provincial laws, with that, which are essentially medieval, uh, you, could, you could pretty much beat up anyone to a certain extent and only have to pay a small fine for it. However, if you were not killed them, uh, or stab them or you know, cut, cut their faces so they would be scarred for life or, or, or you know, cut off some limbs, a limb or something, then you would have to pay the ultimate price, which is wow, your own life. All or nothing. There was nothing, nothing in between there. Well, yeah, because people didn't really... Jailing was not that common back then. They didn't really have in jails. So, so you, you either... It was either fine, like you pay for it, or then you die for it. So it was either or. It only became more lenient during the Russian times when you gradually started to move away from corporal punishment and, and getting in like, jails and, and such. 
I'm not so, so sure that walking from the from the west coast of Finland to Siberia for for, a, for a, to work in the gulag or whatever it was called in those days yeah. is necessarily better than the death penalty. I'm I'm not so sure. But people could re, uh, return from Siberian theory. Uh, often they did it. We they did have a president that did return from Siberia, but, but that's a different story. Uh, <laughs> but however, uh, that that's a we that that is a good story and, and and i do think it's a true story maybe that true story is a good place to uh to wrap it up for today uh we've been talking for yeah. i don't know 45 minutes or so so that is, yeah. which is great thank you so much for your for your time is there is there anywhere that people can connect with you do you want to to share any any well, twitter handler or anything like that uh, well, I did have the uh, Scary YouTube channel, which I'm still trying to produce more material for, for, because it's something that I do, but it's also intended for some of my uh, friends, which are into the same things that I am here locally. So okay. that's something you might want to check out. It's the Scary channel, Scary. Okay, and maybe you can, you can send me the link and I'll put it into the show notes as well so yeah, that people can find you on there. So that's one way of, of finding what I'm, what I'm doing. But, uh, and uh, like often want to bring up, uh, as I feel is important when people are, like we were mentioning bushcraft and stuff, and people are trying to get back to this kind of an, uh, more genuine form of living and connecting with the outside world. Uh, often I find that uh, it's it's very much about survive this and survive that and big knives you hit them with rocks and 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 there's a lot of knowledge which is I wouldn't say lost it's just ignored of how much these things beforehand and that's something I would like to inform people about that hey there was a different way of approaching these things before and now it's just so it's almost like a, a survivalist thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it necessarily doesn't really need to be that. And in fact, I think if you feel, I feel that you lose a lot of other uh, knowledge that way if you approach things too survivally. And and because there is always things to do in the Finnish nature, you can enjoy it. You can make a vihta <laughs> vasta, or or there. <laughs> so if you go out in the bush and just think, now I'm going to survive this, then you are kind of missing out on on the the whole idea of being out in the bush. Yeah, you should enjoy it, not just worry about about yeah. needing to survive it, I guess. And yeah, and you should bring your children, you should, you know, uh, connect with them. And, and and it's also richness to have this, this knowledge, like this story you picked out, for instance. That's richness that you have that story, because you can share that with your children, and, and they can, you know, connect to that story. And, and, and you can, you know, other knowledge about knives that, you know, my grandfather used to save his broken knife because his grandfather used to do it too because they had a <laughs> magical significance yeah. and stuff like that. So that's, you know, that's bringing the, bringing the, bridging the gap between the generations, and connecting people differently in their lives. So if you, if you lives. Want, to learn, want to learn a little bit more about this traditional uh, bushcraft. Do you do you have somewhere that you would direct them to, or or should they find your? YouTube? Well, no, we are setting up that currently here in this area for well, because there's a lot of there's a lot of wilderness here, a lot of beautiful nature, and there are less uh, visitors during uh, autumn and spring. This is a very touristy region with a lot of islands, so there's you know we're filled overcrowded with people 
in 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 summer times but the autumn and spring are you know perfect times to 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 visit this area there's a lot of history we got you know, bronze age viking age there's nature you got seals you got eagles you got even wolves that's uh, <laughs> we had wolves that that, that were attacking a the cow just three kilometers from where i live so so it's there's a lot of nature here, a lot of to explore, and a lot of possibilities for more adventurous people as well as families too. But this is something we're just setting up because there are there are young people who want to work with this issue, but they just don't have have the channels to do it. Okay. Yet, but we 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 think this is a a growing industry. <laughs> but when you when you have something to to. Um... To direct people to them, by all means, give me the um, give me the address, and I'll, uh, okay, thank I'll you. put the yeah. put the link on the notes there. And uh, one one more time, Marcus Leppola, thank you for joining me today. Thank you.